0: Hey everybody, welcome to Literary Disco on Lit Hub Radio, episode 146, The Man They Wanted Me to Be. Today, we discuss a new book out from Jared Yates Sexton about masculinity in America and masculinity in his own life, entitled The Man They Wanted Me to Be. This is Literary Disco, the last book club you'll ever need, where Todd, Julia, and Ryder, three old friends who love to read, debate, and sometimes even agree, I am actor and filmmaker, Writer Strong, joining me, as always, our novelist and critic Todd Goldberg, and essayist and radio personality Julia Pistel. Hi guys. Hey. Hello.
1: We're picking a good week to dive into a book about men being terrible, and specifically men being terrible to women.
0: When is the bad week? I mean, oh, it's all
1: it's always a good week, right? It's always <laughs> I was a say, good week. You can that. say
0: that about pretty much every week for the last <laughs>
1: I don't know, two a hundred three, years, but five thousand years? Certainly within
0: the last <laughs> the last year or two, I would say everything oh, has not been great for uh, Well, so listeners, we're recording
1: this uh just about a week after um Alabama determined or the men of Alabama determined that uh, our friend Julia has no rights. Sorry, Julia. Yeah. Can't control her own body.
2: You know what guys, it was be a good
1: with your vagina.
2: It was a great <laughs> run. Um and, uh, you know, I did what I could when I, when I could. And that's, yeah. that's it. Yeah. Pack it up. It's
1: in. over now. Finally, someone has admitted, Julia doesn't know what to do. I, guys, I have been so enraged for the yeah. last Yeah, this one really enraged. hits
0: a chord with you. I've noticed with the, uh, the tweeting. Uh, oh my it really, God. Yeah. No. Oh,
1: I'm I, so angry. I, so I wrote an op-ed, um, for a newspaper and then it got syndicated all across California. Um about how living in California is a moral choice at this point. Yep. And uh, the first hundred letters I received were all very positive. And then it's like the people got home from work at five. So it's like all the people that wrote me initially didn't go to work immediately at 9 a.m., I think. (laughs) Everyone that got home at five was a man, and they were very, very angry with me. Mm-hmm. So I got all the sort of the threatening die Jew letters after five p.m., and then in the middle of the night I got a lot of the tearful letters of thanks and personal stories and stuff.
2: That's oh, so much, God. so much. It's I have basically stopped going on Twitter, especially because, and we'll get to this when we talk about the books. But like I'm just so tired right now. Like I'm still reading and absorbing the actual news, but like the inane conversation, right. I just like I've heard people say this before, and now I've joined this like zombie army where I'm just like it, every single comment feels like physically painful. So yeah, I just yeah. don't jump in as much.
0: We had like one of the most exciting. You know, I'm I'm uh, I'm on the neighborhood council in my neighborhood, um, and. Uh, so technically I'm an elected official, even though I didn't have to like run a campaign. It's true. Uh, so, you know, do you, it's, have, it's like the, do you have like, it's buttons the lowest stuff? tier of, of, of city politics that I'm involved in, but it's something I started, you know, two years ago or whatever. And it's great. And we do mostly outreach, like mostly we're just there to try and represent, uh, to the city council, you know, right. our neighborhood. But, uh, we also, we get to write these community impact statements and we can create letters based on, you know, just issues that we want to take up. And, uh, one of my fellow council board members wrote an amazing letter to the mayor of uh, of uh, Los Angeles you know saying you know we should refuse to do a business with Georgia like we should as a city stop you know and it was am- it was so interesting because then it just opened up the discussion you know usually we're talking about such basic sort of, city functioning stuff or neighborhood right. functioning stuff. So to hit something that hard was like, wow. And like, uh, there were, there was some good debate, like, you know, c- and because it's going through Hollywood right now, especially like, do do we boycott Georgia, um, as an industry? Um, and it, it I don't know, it, it was it was actually exciting. it was It was nice to be sort of at a table where you're debating with people, and you know, we're we're not going to change anything other than sending a letter to the mayor. But we had to vote on it. and we had to sort of put our beliefs in the line and hold our hand up and argue it with each other. And you know, I, mm-hmm. I was it's an incredibly liberal neighborhood council because I live in a very liberal area. But it was interesting. there was some, you know pushback, uh, even people that that are pro-choice. The idea of using our sort of economic power, or to um, to screw over ordinary citizens of Georgia, especially people within the film industry, um, I, I, I understand that argument, but I also feel like uh, I agree with the, the thrust of your op-ed, Todd, which is, don't live in Georgia then, or change your representation. <laughs> right. You know, like it's your responsibility as a citizen of a state to pressure the people that represent your state to recognize human rights. Um, so yeah. though, if and we can culturally put that pressure on them because they've wooed us with the entertainment industry, right? Like right. they gave us all these tax breaks, all these representatives, they, they got the entertainment industry to go out there. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, we we've all fallen for it. We all were like, great, we're going where the money is, the work is. And as a result, the culture of Georgia has, has drastically changed. Like it's, there's a real film industry there, a thriving film industry. And, the, the result of that ultimately is going to be cultural shift. Like they're going to become more liberal and that's great. Yeah. So now it's it's beholden on them to stand up to this bullshit, you know, I mean, cause this is, I mean, this is insane and this is the, exactly the kind of thing that, you know, these representatives should be kicked out of office for or voted well, out of
1: office And for. And, you know, you see it sort of working um in slow motion in georgia right like Stacey abrams almost won the governor's office in georgia right. they had right. so much voter suppression um they didn't have enough representation in georgia to keep the civil rights era laws in place for voting rights right they lost the voting rights protections which then opened up the door for voters to be suppressed so you you're seeing like the the vote counts are closer now the democrats are getting closer there um but you know i, I agree with you writer. like it's tough like if there's a place that you hate um, what they stand for, do you not go there or do you go there and try and inspire change? Right. I, I, it, it's hard to say. Um, but like the University of California, for instance, um, you cannot use taxpayer money to go to a, a, 10 different states at this point. Um, and I don't remember all of them off the top of my head, but Why? I know one of them uh, for gay rights issues.
0: Hmm. Interesting. So they took a stand on that.
1: Yeah. So, for instance, I can't use uh, – if I travel to um, Texas, I believe, in fact, or Alabama or North Carolina, I think Georgia's on the list. It's it's places you'd expect, frankly. Right. Um, right. I can't use anything that has come from the taxpayers to fund my travel to those places. If I go to a conference or a seminar or whatever, um, I have to use non-taxpayer money. So, money that comes from a grant or um, – or profit, or whatever it might be, is the only way to fund it. Now, I actually work for a program that is self-supporting, which means that all the money comes directly from tuition people pay versus taxpayer money that goes into the kitty that then pays for university business. So you um, don't
2: have to have morals. You're good.
1: Uh, well, I have my own morals. <laughs> I'm kidding. And as a person in charge of something, I get to make these decisions. Mm. Um, but I, like, I, I really support that, like... Yeah, California says we are against this thing. Californians shouldn't pay for me to enrich the state of Texas by going there. Right. Um, that seems that seems perfectly logical to me. Um, but you know, all of these things are open for tons of whataboutisms, right? It's tons of context. <laughs> tons of. <laughs> You know, well, what if I'm going to Alabama for an LGBTQ film festival? You know, like, oh, God, <laughs> nice. what am I going to do? Better, better get there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Better get there fast and bring a gun. Um, so, <laughs> all and this, this a lot of this dovetails directly into the, the, the book that we're going to read. And actually, it dovetails into Jared's first book, uh, too. So, before we talk about um, The Man They Wanted Me to Be by Jared yates Sexton, I should say two things, which is that I know Jared. Um, and Jared and I uh, share the same editor and publisher. Um, so biases well, are, uh, are there in, in a very bare sense that don't really matter because I love the book. You, <laughs> so, and you're, you're very
2: corrupt. We all get it. Easily yeah, influenced. Yeah,
1: it's, it is a log rolling industry. <laughs> um, but Jared's book before this um, was a fantastic political book called The People Are Going to Rise Like the Waters Upon Your Shore um he wrote it it came out after the election he had spent um a year going to trump rallies and following um trump around and writing about it he was really one of the first journalists to essentially say um you know what uh, al pacino says in uh, godfather 2 which is that they're going to win
0: <laughs> you know <laughs> yeah. they're,
1: they're going to win um he was right and, um, and it was startling what he saw and what he saw was a harbinger for everything that we've now experienced. Yeah. Uh, I think I started,
0: you know, cause we follow each other on Twitter and I'm mm-hmm. assuming it's because of when he, he sort of went viral with his live tweets from Trump rallies. Right. Yeah. And I remember, I, I, I believe it was a friend of mine that was like, you have to read these threads because you know, that was when you first saw the xenophobia and resentment and Racism and white supremacy and, um, the, you know, misogyny, which is right. really what this book sort of picks up on um, Jared Yates Sexton starts off with um, Talking about how he started going to Trump rallies and started seeing what was happening uh, With angry white men in America and he linked this to his own childhood and his own feelings about masculinity and so in this book he traces the arc of a very personal narrative yeah. and then also mm-hmm. um, makes it parallel uh, this sort of broader cultural movement that he sees. Um, so it's, you know, his American culture at large and then his own life, st- all the struggles that stem from our conceptions of masculinity. Um, right. What'd you guys think?
2: I will um, go first. Let me go first. You may go first. You go first.
1: As long last, the patriarchy's toppled, Julia goes first. <laughs> so
2: we have skipped the subtitle of the book. Uh, and I think that's... It's easy to fall into like talking about Trump and politics because that's our entry into this author. But the subtitle is Toxic Masculinity and a Crisis of Our Own Making. And that's what the book is about. It's about toxic right. masculinity. Yeah. So <laughs> I would say... I, I mean, this is gonna sound not like a compliment, but uh, this book drained the fucking life out of me. I
1: <laughs> <laughs> I, agree. I totally agree with you. Go ahead. I
2: there was no part of this book where I was like shocked or defensive, but seeing it all strung together was such. It was just very powerfully exhausting Uh, and you you can have that blurb for free Jared Um, (laughs) because what he does is he um, interweaves his own personal well really his mother's personal history with men and um, all his his dad and he has a couple different stepdads and other male figures in his life Um, But he interweaves that with like, yeah, they're all named John. Uh, (laughs) They all kind of reflect these different, you know, aspects of toxic masculinity. And essentially the book is like, well, here's a story of just one life that, you know, you can tell is ordinary. But it's like, hey, look, in my everyday world, I came across domestic abuse, Um, people who creepily stalked outside my house, which is one of the most terrifying things I've ever read in my life. Um, Yes. Uh, ro- the rock star vibe, trolls, jocks. I mean, yeah. it was just such a beat down of how inescapable um, these ideas are and these cultural forces are. In a way that I like, I want everyone to read this book, and so I want to like in my own personal like talking about it and recommendation of it, like downplay the political book ending of this book because I, I just mm-hmm. I feel like that's just one tiny grain of sand in this little hourglass and we need people to see the whole picture like this is so much Mm -hmm. bigger than trump or an election it is so much bigger than these areas of america it's so much bigger than america like it is is the problem like it it's it's focusing this light on exactly what is so terrible about masculinity or toxic masculinity and the patriarchy which is it hurts men like, we always right, hear right. come up in conversation like, you know, it's bad for women. And, of course, it's horrible for women, arguably worse for women in a lot of ways. But it, you just see man after man in this book going through unimaginable pain. So if that sounds like yeah, a good read yeah. to you, um, go for it uh, because it's really important <laughs> for people to understand how um, abusive and – you know, constricting our ideas of the American man are.
1: I 100% agree with everything that you're saying. Um, it is an exhausting book and a difficult book. And here's the, here was the really challenging thing for me. Um, if I wasn't, if, if you had transposed this book into a um, wealthy neighborhood in Northern California, mm-hmm. I had the same exact experience.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it is actually very mm-hmm. similar because you had a, a mom who had various stepfather <laughs> yeah, figures yep. coming through, and, and yeah, and I'm, very similar. And I'm
1: abusive, yeah, um, mm-hmm. violent, um, all you know, drug addict, alcoholics, narcissistic um, delusions, crazy, murderous, suicidal ideation mm-hmm. um, for the men that she brought into the house, and then you know for long periods of time when i was a kid i was hurting myself i was I, you know I, I had a stomach ache for two years oh, wow. um you know wow. like I, I i was reading this and i was like
0: get out of my head um <laughs> yeah i had i had a very similar reaction it's intense i mean a part of it is just also reading a memoir by somebody my own age right yeah. you know what i mean like I, yeah. I i'm so used to reading memoirs by people at least 10, 15 years older. So to read a memoir of somebody growing up, like he's two years younger than me, I yeah, think. He's so it's 38, like, yeah yeah. And it's like, Oh, you are talking about exactly the, the moment in culture that I was growing up. And right. the, the same insults, the same bullshit was like being leveled constantly. And it's like, yeah, even in Northern California, like you're saying, a completely different, you know, other right. side of the country. But I, I could relate, like I could hear all those echoes and be like, "Oh right, that did happen. Oh right, that that was a thing."
1: And <laughs> you know, amazing. I have written I've written two things essentially that I've where I tried to grapple with these things. There was a short story of mine called uh, "Walls," really where short I story. go through and I list all these different horrible men that my mom dated, and I fictionalized it in the sense that I didn't use their real names. Um, and this one good man that she did. And then this other piece, this essay, um, called, uh, when they let them bleed, um, then I, and I sort of wrote them in the same style, it occurs to me, but in each case, you know, I was trying to work through all this weird shit of being like this sensitive kid, um, surrounded by these horrible men who wanted me to be this thing that I wasn't, um, and, like, I had a... Like, Jared has a, a point in this book where he decides he's going to essentially be that guy. I spent five years as a frat boy. Like, like yeah. as the most <laughs> sensitive yeah. frat boy in America, maybe, but I was the frat boy. Um, and, you know, drinking to excess and blacking out and being just a generally horrible guy and getting into bar fights and, you know, like, stuff where I look back at and I just think, you know, that wasn't even a close approximation of... Of who I am, you know, um, and so it really struck a chord with me in the sense that it made me feel like I wasn't alone in the world. Of course, um, but also how common and banal it is, because it's all the stuff he talks about it seems like a stereotype until you it, until you recognize it's a stereotype because it's true. <laughs> you know that 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 there's constant cycles of these sort of abusive men who can't um, elucidate their feelings, who then. Pass that on to some kid, um, and and like Jared. So Jared had one figure in his life. He had a grandfather who essentially said, "Hey, if you gotta cry, you should cry." I had I had the same thing. I had a grandfather who always was emotionally vulnerable and empathetic and caring and loving and all those things. And I had another grandfather who was just not a very good guy. <laughs> on top of everything else, and and to have one sensitive male figure in your life is not enough. You know, it is not enough. So I was really I was really struck by this book.
2: One thing that I think that he does that's really brave um, that I mean, a lot of this book is really brave, which I think is a word that gets thrown around too much for memoir. But this is it. Um, But he basically says, you know, this these ideas of masculinity are like an addiction. And for certain periods of my time, I thought I was like better than that or could escape it, but no, it's like Mm -hmm. pick your poison. When you hit a hard time, you know, you can, there's so many different ways of falling back into the quicksand and frat boy is certainly one of them. You know, it's just like, which of these places can I slot myself into? What'd you think, Ryder? Yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, I have a lot of thoughts, but I mean, just jumping on that, like the, uh, I've never, I really liked how he, I mean, talking about him, himself, but but he also, he, he describes different types of, like, masculine archetypes that, mm. that that are acceptable for men, and the one that I, you know, there's, like, the, the stoic cowboy, you know, whatever, <laughs> but the one that I had never really thought about, which he elucidates and talks about in relation to himself, is the, like, heavy drinking outlaw,
1: right. like, mm-hmm. rock
0: and roll guy, and I realized, like, oh, I've Definitely trafficked in that in my own life. You oh, know what yeah. I mean? Like, there was a period when I was like 19 where it was all about like trying to be like Jim Morrison and being the guy who like drank too much whiskey and was like so. And there was like, in a weird way, it was like, you know, a channeling of this poetic, literary persona into this like rock and roll bullshit party. Person like right. and and yeah. I was like oh I've never thought of that as like performative masculinity but that's what that was like mm-hmm. that's that's totally what that was and I engaged in it without really I I still had never thought and it, so there are a lot of insights like that throughout this book that I just I loved and and, and I mean it, this book is really weird for me because um, I'm probably like the the perfect audience but also the worst audience in that. Mm-hmm. (laughs) I, 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 because of a project that I've been working on for the last couple years, I've spent a lot of time, uh, researching masculinity and men's rights movements and all this stuff. So I'm like up to date on all of this stuff. Um, and so reading this book would kind of felt like, yeah, 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 I know. You know, this is, is all very familiar except for, of course, the personal memoir stuff. So, Mm -hmm. um, for me, it felt a little clunky, like alternating between the memoir and the cultural criticism, um, and, and I don't know if how much of that is a function of that. I already knew a lot of this stuff. Do you know what? Like I, I, mm. I feel very, like, I feel like this is like, if I, I'm not writing a book and I'm making a movie, but if I were writing a book about men's movements and stuff like this, it probably would be pretty similar to this and it would probably right. have used a lot of the same sources. Um, and so there was not much revelation in terms of the cultural criticism for me. Um, and I also, I worried a little bit about, um, like it, it's very much of the moment, um, you know, and I, I, I like what you were saying, you were alluding to this earlier, Julia, that it's very political and it's very contemporary. And I think that might be to a fault. I think, yeah. if, you know, even just some of the vocabulary, it's like there's, you know, even just the, the, the phrase toxic masculinity and... Um, I don't know. There's a lot in this book that feels very like 2016 to 2019. (laughs) And I I hope, I I hope that it will survive beyond that because I think it deserves to. But I also feel like it's very much like, uh, just, it's it's very like buzzwordy. And like, if you've been reading articles for the last couple years, like I have, on this issue, you're kind of already up to date. Do you know what I mean? Like you don't, this book is not going to elucidate new things for you. That said the book might not be really written for me. It's written for hopefully people like his co, you know, the people he grew up with in Indiana or the people he works with in Georgia. So, so hopefully it'll get through to, to, to those people, I guess. But, um, I I couldn't help but feel like it fell a little bit short as, as, as a sort of, uh, as, uh, I I just think if he had taken a little bit more risk and gone more memoir and less cultural criticism, um, Mm -hmm. I think I would have been more on board. But, you know, that's obviously, Mm. I'm a more fiction person anyway. I get what you're saying.
1: I get what you're saying. And I I think here's the challenge. Um, If it were just a memoir, it would be an Augustine Burroughs book. You know what I mean? Right. Um, And so if he is attempting to make both an academic argument, essentially, and have the academic argument stick by saying, okay, you might not believe that all of these things are true. But here is seven different examples directly from my life that lines up directly with this academic argument that I'm making based on XYZ study done at Seton Hall in 1994 or whatever. Um, If it was just a memoir, it would be just another story about shitty things that happened to a man. So I think it has to be, uh, in order for this book to be published, I think it has yeah. to have that other thing. And I think, you know, to your to your point about it being of its time, I, I think it's of its time in the same way that um, this entire spate of political books in the last five years have been of its time. Everyone is trying to make sense of a world they thought they knew. Yeah. And then all of it is upended. And you're like, how, how is this possible? And so here is an examination of himself, but also with the clinical background to say, you should have seen it coming, basically. Right. And so in that way, I, I, I think it makes it essential for this time. I think you're right that, you know, in 10 years time, will all of this just be like, oh yeah, yeah, we know this. Like men have been conditioned for this, blah, blah, blah. Um, but maybe that's just, because you and I and Julia already know that. Yeah. Um, Like this. I don't think so. I I mean, I I think, I think a good comparison might be like the fact of a body. Do you remember that
0: memoir that we read? You know, like something, that book managed to weave memoir and cultural criticism and a history of a a specific case um, and, and make a point about the death penalty without feeling like it could only have been written within a two year span or a one year span, you know, mm-hmm. whereas this book definitely feels like, like there's news-pad. no other year it could have been published. Yeah, there's right. it's no news-pad. other time. And I, you know, and so I only worry about its relevancy moving forward. Um, I, I don't know if that's even worth worrying about.
1: I guess I felt like, it, felt,
0: it felt like an article. Do you know what I mean? It felt yeah. like a very good, very well-written magazine piece. That's like long and cool, but I, but you know, when I put it up against something like Fact of a Body or other other memoirs or or books that have you know even like you know one of the seminal books that changed my life in college was Barbara Ironreich's The Hearts of Men, which is a study of masculinity in you know the twentieth century that is brilliant, and that's a cultural criticism book that you know. To me, stands the test of time. Like I, you know, I, I actually couldn't find my copy tonight. I was really frustrated, but like I want to reread it now because to me, the insights and the connections she was making there were a little further reaching. Like I feel like um, Jared is very, he's very locked into the contemporary moment.
2: So I Um, am fascinated by this writer because I, okay, so you're saying. (laughs) This delights me. You're like, I knew everything about this except for the one brief part where I had a revelation that I too have toxic masculinity. Like, that's the important part. <laughs> that's it. Like, totally. that's, that is what, from like the female perspective, which is totally understanding, but like, that's all we want you to fucking get. You know what I mean? Like, that's, <laughs> that is right. what. Every woman around you wants you to understand is like this sad boy writer and the like stand up comedian who just yells at himself and talks about how everyone hates him. Like, these are all included. Like, you don't get to feel right. special. And that is, <laughs> that's what I want to like shake well, everyone go. and explain. <laughs> Kill myself. Um, so, no, don't. That's part of it. Ha ha. You're still doing it. If you do that, uh, argues the book (laughs) um
1: even in death
2: but i think the the weakness and i i do actually agree with you mostly Ryder. um but the weakness is like this is like staring into the sun the subject is so huge and so intense like i'm just like good for you dude (laughs) like you're trying it because who cares what barbara ehrenreich says like a middle-aged i mean of course i do but like Nobody's going to listen to her. Like it needs to there need to the revolution in this kind of thinking has to come from men who are like I do this. I cause harm. I perpetuate right, right. violence and here's how it works in my life. And that's really important. And I agree that, like, there were several sentences, just one-liners in this book where I was like, oh, yeah, I read three Atlantic pieces just about that study. Um, So he's, like, condensing, condensing, condensing. I thought the book was way too short on that level. You know, like, I would have read a whole entire book on domestic violence or trolls Mm -hmm. or Gamergate or um, what are some of veterans, you know the way we treat veterans in relation to, like, their masculinity. Like, all those things were interesting. But he's trying to, like, build this huge world, and it's, like, 250 pages. It's way too little. So it can feel thin, but I think that's just a... It's just him trying to, like, demonstrate the totality of it. He's trying to show a world.
1: But here's the bigger thing, though, is that it's not called the men they wanted us to be it's called the man they wanted me to be you know so he is personalizing obviously a huge thing like there was a point in this when he was sort of talking about the cowboy outlaw ethos where i was like i would really like right now for you to go for 50 pages into the history of the American yeah. cowboy and how that then became the detective or the assassin. Like, I I was yeah. wanting that as well. You or know? when he was um, like, like how the uh, man in-
2: when he said, sorry to interrupt, but another one, he was talking about like sure. how marketing has affected our ability to like, you know, work with or against these gender expectations. And I was like, well, of course, we'll get to a chapter that'll be like 30 pages where I can think about how marketing has ruined my life. <laughs> and it just never yeah. comes because there's so much other right. stuff to get to. I mean, go on.
1: So, yeah, so, I and in that way, like, I I think we have to temper our expectations a little bit. Like, he is not, in fact, doing a vast cultural study of it. He's doing a personal study of how these things affected him and i think that's a a key thing in understanding this but i also think it is the key to making the book actually readable by the people who need it the most if if you hand this book to a 25 year old man and say hey you should read this and by the way it has one of the greatest covers i've ever seen the cover's great just a brilliant cover but if you hand this to a 25 year old and say hey like this guy he reminds me of, of you or whatever, you should read this. This guy that reads this might be like, Oh yeah, this guy he had a fucked up childhood and his his father's a drunk and another father's a crook and another father's abusive and all this stuff like oh yeah, oh he wants to be a writer, oh he's a little sensitive, he doesn't know who he wants to be. Oh, there's a creepy stalker who wants to kill him and his and his mom. Like there's all these little sort of personal things that would appeal to that person. That if you also said, and now here's 75 pages on the history of Marlboro's advertising, is not going to appeal to that right. person. Yeah. And so in a way, I think of this book um, as sort of like um, a, a dentist office read. And I'm going <laughs> to to define that. I'm going to define that. Sometimes I think about like when I'm sitting in a dentist office and I pick up like the GQ from seven months ago. And I'm flipping through. It while I'm waiting to have my face drilled. And I'm in the middle of an article. And they're like, okay, Mr. Goldberg. And I'm like, ah, shit. I want to keep reading this. Yeah. <laughs> and then I stick it like under like five S magazines. If it's great, what I'm going to do is I'm going to walk out and I'm going to steal the GQ right. <laughs> when, I'm, when I'm done. And I'm going to take yeah. it with me. If, if I picked up this book in a dentist's office and was reading it, I would steal it on the way back out. Um, because it is reaching me on an emotional level, it's me, reaching me on an intellectual level, but it's not boring me um, with the academia. It's just enough to let me know that what he's saying is not just a personal essay, but is rooted in something larger. And I, I think that there is sort of a, um, a pop cultural psychology aspect mm-hmm. to that that is, in this day and age, going to be really appealing for people where they feel like they can read a 250-page book and learn about something they didn't quite understand and understand it better with examples. Yeah. yeah. So
0: that's what, that's, what, that's what finally hit me, like, you know, because I was, I was reading the book and I'm like, there's something that's bothering me about this book. Um, there's something about the, this is a very smart guy and he's very well read and he's studied and he's thinking about this incredibly interestingly, but um, the, 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 the structure of the book felt too tidy. It felt too clean and it finally hit me like on page 158 uh, which is i think when he first talks about suicide and idea you know <laughs> er, 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 and i realized oh this is a conversion narrative yeah. that's what this book is mm-hmm. it's like it's like it's it's saint augustine it's an alcoholics memoir but it's the drug is masculinity right or a toxic right. masculinity yeah. and so that's that's what i didn't that's what i that's what makes it popular like you're saying that's what makes it pop psychological but that's also what i I rubbed up against because it's like, I wanted it to be a little messier. And the thing about conversion narratives is that they're clean, right? It's, I was a mess then I saw the light. Now I've was converted. And that's what this book is. I mean, it's literally him in therapy finally expressing himself. Like that's his, the arc of his narrative is like, I was finally able to, come to terms with my real dad, my biological dad and start going to therapy and figuring my shit out and writing this book is therapeutic in a way. And he's spreading the gospel of, you know, breaking the chains of toxic masculinity. That's an agenda. And Mm -hmm. that is, that is a very clear agenda. And so there are times when I feel like he really breezes over and he cherry picks some studies. I think the, like the issue of biological differences between the genders is like, very cleanly avoided and just dismissed. And I think that's like kind of a huge issue that really speaks to what a lot of men that he wants to reach out to need to be, that needs to be addressed. And it's reaching a lot of men right now. And, um, for instance, you know, like there's, there's a really great moment early on when he, he, he describes playing football. And how awful it was. And then at the end of this whole section about all the abuse, he's like, but I'll tell you the truth. It felt so good to be cheered and to be accepted. And that participating in the masculine ritual made... And I was like, yes, I want more of this, man. Like, I don't want the, like, easy, I figured it all out. Let me like let me explain why toxic mas- or masculinity is toxic. Dah, 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 dah. Like, I wanted more nuanced discussions about how how in how wonderful it was and how sometimes masculinity really fucking helps and really helped you in particular and I feel like there wasn't enough of that I, 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 I especially in the memoir side of things it was it was too clean it was too easy to see the sort of black and white divisions and that's not the way it really feels the way it feels when you're dealing with these issues are it's way more nuanced it's way harder to sort of parse and figure out and and I feel like he's just kind of taken a sledgehammer sometimes because it's a conversion narrative. He's been saved and he's just preaching the gospel of like how bad toxic masculinity is. And that's great, yes, I agree with you. I totally get it. And I, you know, yes. But I, as a as a work of art, as a book, like uh, I, I, I would want a little bit more nuance. I want a little more questioning. I want a little more uncomfortable. I want to feel a little more uncomfortable. I felt very comfortable for the most part reading this book. <laughs> hmm. hmm.
2: I feel like you should feel more uncomfortable. <laughs>
1: really? Like I, yeah. I felt uncomfortable reading it. And I'll tell I, you why I felt uncomfortable. Well go ahead, Julia. It's we, nice we, you we feel.
2: It's nice you feel comfortable on any level because I just I read this book and I was like, wow, I'm never gonna fucking get away from this. My daughter's never gonna get away from this every person I know is going to get away from this like that is uncomfortable like this is such an awful situation like I I have never said this on this show but like at this point I basically don't care about the actual nuance of the like quality of the work I just want people to have the language to like you know, be able to discuss these issues,
1: yeah. I mean, and I, the reason that I'm on that this book made me feel uncomfortable is that I like you know, I'm the three of us, uh, represent three of the most liberal human beings on the face of the planet. <laughs> um, but like you know, I when I look at sort of the institutional toxic masculinity that he deals with, like so, Julie and I have mentioned this a couple times while talking about this. There's, there's a part of this book where as a child, he's living with his mom and there's some peeping Tom that's knocking on their window every night and trying to break into their house. And every time his mom calls the cops, they essentially say, shut up, lady. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's You're neurotic, basically. And like that's that's not like your stepdad. That is the institution of law enforcement saying you can't judge your own safety.
2: Or and how about the fact that his mom has endured so much abuse, and he does not reflect on this? To Ryder's point, and it's still fucking up to her to call him five times a day because she knows he's going to try to kill himself.
1: Kill himself. Like yeah. the
2: burden on this woman, and when yes. the statistics that's like that are right at the beginning of the book, it's like. One in five women endures that much physical abuse. That is so many fucking women. Like, Mm -hmm. that's that's just mind-blowing. And one in three is, like, any form of abuse, I think. So, yeah. And, you
1: know, when I I read that stat, I I walked outside to go get my newspaper. And I looked down the street and I was like, okay, there's ten houses on my street here. Which house do I think the woman's getting beaten in? Oh, (laughs) Like I actually did that math, mm-hmm. and I was, and, and so he, so here's the other thing, and this is the other reason why I, I somewhat disagree with you, Ryder. Uh, like, even when I was in my toxic masculine <laughs> part of my life, like in my 20s, when I lived your with most, toxic guys, <laughs> most toxic
0: prime, my most toxic
1: prime, when I lived with guys who like. I lived with half of a football team. Um, Brad and, and Chuck and Yeah, everyone was named Scooter. Actually, and- all the guys in it were named Todd, <laughs> which was which was actually <laughs> upsetting. But for a time there was um there were five of us that lived in a house in Northridge, and we were five of the biggest fucking morons on earth. But our next door neighbor was uh this Russian guy, and he had a wife and a little kid. And he used to beat the shit out of them. And there was one, and like, we would call the cops, we would call the cops, we would call the cops. Cops wouldn't do anything. And there was one day, the wife ran outside screaming, and my roommate, who played quarterback on the football team, and I walked out there, and my roommate said, if you ever touch her again, I'm going to rip your fucking arms off. And that guy looked at him, and he was like, about to talk shit to him and then my roommate was like, I'm not even worried about going to jail because the cops don't do anything to you. What are they gonna do to me? And this guy was like, Uh and he's like, Get in your car, go. You need to go and never come back. And that dude left and I was like, We should have kicked his ass and I was like, Oh my god, I'm no better than, than that guy. Like I, I have the bloodlust too, yeah, you know? Violence. Yeah.
2: And how do you know he didn't come back? I And like, it's good. It's amazing that you guys said something um, which lead up to your my questioning you guys what you might do with this book and who you might recommend it to because I'm curious.
1: I, I I tell you exactly I'm going to give it to him. I'm going to give it to my nephew who just graduated from college who I told one day as he was pledging a fraternity at a large southern university in Tennessee, when the cops come, don't lie to them. And he was like... When the cops come for what? And I said, they're gonna come. Don't lie to them. Whatever your buddy does, whatever your friend does, whatever you think is cool, it's not. Don't lie. And he was like, oh my God, that was really good advice. <laughs>
2: <laughs> what a sage wise man you are. <laughs>
1: okay.
0: Yeah, I actually don't know who I'm gonna give it to. I mean, I, yeah, I mean, I, it's a good question. Um, I, Yeah, I feel like I actually engage in a lot of, I have been for the last couple of years engaging in a lot of conversations around this subject, you know, or, or variations on the subject. Um, uh, so I'm sure there are lots of people in my life who would enjoy reading it, just carrying it around for the last week. I've had people be like, Oh, how is that? So the word is out about this book, like more than one person (laughs) recognized it and knew who he was or that the book was coming out, you know? Um, so I think it's, it's, it's seizing on the popular imagination in exactly the way that it, it probably should. Um, mm. but you
1: know what I was struck by <laughs> actually while reading it is the synchronicity of the fact that I read this right after reading Hugh Ryan's when Brooklyn was queer and live oak with moss. Yeah, totally. <laughs> <laughs> like those are the three books I've read in the last two weeks or whatever. And they are they are of a kind yep. that you would not expect. Totally, <laughs> you know, um, it it is it is a about a, the question of the very fabric of America, about what makes human empathy, um, about what we are willing to say and how vulnerable we are or are not willing to be, how accepting or tolerant. Yeah, you know, and that like you know we said that on Hugh's show, like the difference between tolerance and acceptance is is big. <laughs> You know, there's it's the Venn diagram is not that 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 narrow between the two of them, unfortunately.
2: What's special about this subject? Well, let me first say, you know, love to use book, love Walt Whitman, et cetera. But, you know, the gay community is full of these issues, too. You know, Um, toxic masculinity issues but what I think is really important about this book is, like, this isn't about tolerating and accepting women. It's about mm. tolerating and accepting yourself and your own humanity for men yeah. being able and allowed to do that. Um, and the residual effect will be a kinder, better world. Um, but it's really hard. And the the way to go is so long um, that I don't, really envy you guys having to like think about this and grapple with this and like i'm (laughs) i kept putting down this book to like talk to my own husband about it and you know you guys have met him and i think he's probably the least toxic (laughs) he like got a text from his friend from high school and they were like deciding something and I was like, just call him, just call him on the phone. I'm like putting putting down the book. I'm like, you need to develop your friendships. <laughs> and he like calls him and talks to him for like one minute and then hangs up and I was like, Greg, loneliness is as dangerous as smoking. You need to like develop
0: <laughs> your connections.
2: And it's funny, but it's also like, there's some pitfall for everybody, for every Mm -hmm. man in America, where it's like hard to say, I love you or I care about you, or it's hard to be like, well, I could just chat on the phone with my friend for no reason, um, or cry at a movie or whatever, and there's a million different versions, but I, I think probably every man has to do this work and nobody gets a pass all white people do not get it. Like, you can't be like, check, I did it. I'm not racist anymore. Like,
1: (laughs) Well, you know, it's funny. Um, So this week I went and I talked to um, a high school career day. And I talked to creative writing classes at this high school from 7.30 in the morning until 2 o'clock in the afternoon. So they got the best of me. Taught at 7.30 is a rare treat. Um, And I've seen it. it, Yeah. You know, the... I, I found myself talking to these kids a lot. And maybe it's because I was reading the book. I don't know. But I I ended up talking to them a lot about, like, hey, look, if you can't be vulnerable with your friends, be vulnerable with yourself and go write crappy poetry at home or try to write a short story or write down whatever emotions you're having. If you feel like your your boys won't listen to you when you say that you're scared or um, or you're into something that they're not into, well, then find a community on the internet that is into that and talk to people there. Because I've, I feel like when I, I... I mean, I've always been a pretty sensitive like guy and kid and was never afraid to tell people that I liked them and cared about them and things like that. But maybe that's because I had close-knit siblings. I think that plays a role. I don't know, Ryder. Maybe did you feel the same way with having a, a brother that was really close to you and you're still close to you?
0: Uh, what do you mean? Like...
1: Like the, where you're able to say to other guys, like, "Hey, man, I'm I'm I feel bad for you, or I'm sad." For yeah, you or I'm happy I mean, for I grew you. up in
0: the most fortunate situation where my dad and my brother encouraged. You know, we had we always it was I love you. It was always hugging. Right. It was always crying. It was always expressing yourself. And no, I just I, you know I was so fortunate. And that's my dad was you know, the classic toxic masculine upbringing. You know, abusive father, right? Marine Corps fire department in san francisco so he was like the the sort of ultimate man's man in every way um uh except the toxic expression way you know like he was always Mm -hmm. very communicative and uh you know loving and and encouraging us to express ourselves his first
1: name is king for god's sake listeners (laughs) ryard's father's first name is king king strong right
0: but don't call him queen
1: no, seriously. Right, like, right, that was... That's, right. like, the
0: line. Do you know what I mean? So, right. the, the toxic masculinity had seeped into him. And, like, he... Right. Like, when, when I was growing up, there was still a lot of homophobia um, that he has right. overcome. Um, primarily because, you know, he's seen the world and gotten out and, like, right. experienced it. So, you know, there were issues there, you know, that he still had to... And, and had to, like, sort of confront. And he's very open about all of that. Um,
1: right. But,
0: but yeah, no, I, I just was lucky enough that the expressive... Like you know, expressing yourself and being emotional and having being vulnerable and having feelings was like always okay, if not celebrated. Yeah. And I'm just so thankful. Oh my god! I mean, that's California too. You know, I mean that's that's another right. reason to live yeah. in California. Yeah. Not in Georgia, right. I was in you know liberal Northern California where that was okay. You know, it,
1: but like I I, I remember um, like you know there was, there was a sort of history of all these terrible men that were in my mom's life, and I remember my my oldest and dearest friend Todd. Like, I remember telling him all these horrible things that were happening. And he was, you know, extraordinarily empathetic as well. And he was like, you should talk to my mom. Like, you should you should talk to my mom. And I did. At, like, 11 years old, I was able to have these sort of conversations with another adult about the things that I was feeling. And it was his mom who was saying things to me like, you're going to be 18. You know? One day, all these things that you're feeling, you can close that door and not worry about them anymore. Mm. Um, and I think sometimes young people feel like there is no future because they, they, they don't have any memory, right? Like everything that is happening to them is happening to them in present tense because they can only remember three years behind themselves. Yeah. Um, but to have someone tell you like, Hey, it's like, you know, those, those commercials, like it gets better, right? Mm-hmm. Like, but, but to have someone tell you when you're 10 or 11 or 12 years old and you're in a terrible emotional places, like. What you're feeling right now is not how you're going to feel for the rest of your life. This will end. Like, that light at the end of the tunnel is not a train. It's an open door that you get to walk through and slam behind you and go say, fuck all these people if you want to. Um, And so, like, that for me as a kid, like, being able to be emotionally vulnerable and talk about that stuff as a young guy was important. And I found, like, maybe I just, because I was an arty kid or whatever, I found other kids that felt that way and I could talk to them like my friend Jim um, when I was a kid. But for the most part, you know, I, I played a role too, like we all did yeah. when we were young.
2: And we all still do, you know? Like mm-hmm. there's some oh, – I just read a longer article about this, but one of the pieces of science quoted or referenced in this book I just am so fascinated by, which is – uh, on my favorite topic which is work sharing in married couples with children. Anyway um, the statistic is that women who work like working moms who are married they will do more housework and housework. more cooking because it se- the data suggests that they're performing femininity to like make up for this weird, you know, dynamic Mm. of equality that they somehow (laughs) achieved. Um, And I just think that's so depressing.
0: Uh,
2: It's just shocking how depressing it is. Um, But also really interesting, right? Like, we we feel like, you know, we have to have something to prove gender-wise all the time.
1: So, like, my question for that is, like, chemically, what is the thing that's happening, you know? Like... These are I mean, these are learned gender roles in many cases, right? Um, within a within a marriage. Um but within a marriage, like there should be the conversation about who does what and all that stuff. But like chemically what's happening that makes you do it. Like what what in your brain is being fed by doing that thing?
2: Honestly, there's this is such an interesting area of thought and study because one of the problems economically, and stop me if I brought this up in the podcast recently. Um Economically speaking, for this big gender gap um, where like women are getting more jobs and are better employed and men are kind of underemployed and there's a lot of frustration there is that women have like the things have changed and women can feel more comfortable like going into many different fields. But there are so many fields that men will not go into because they seem like women's fields um oh. so if there's a lot of for example nursing jobs out there or kindergarten teacher jobs men still aren't applying for that because the pressure of gender conformity is so great that it can't move the needle in a way that has been moved i, I
1: had a thought about that just recently in a, a completely odd situation I was watching my new all-time favorite show that Ryder got me to watch, uh, Patriot. Yay. And um, <laughs> he has this song. The <laughs> assassin killer folk singer has a song where he ponders, why aren't there, there more maids in hotels <laughs> that are men? Like, that's his, like that's one of his deep thoughts. And I was like, oh my God. You never see maids in hotels that are men. Like, the word maid... Uh, is a gender conforming name? Oh yeah, now, well, right? well, think
0: about this. This is something that was pointed out to me once. There's no male equivalent to old maid, right? right. Like, like that's a that's a category that only exists or spinster, right? Like that, there, you can Like right. if, if it's a guy, it's what a bachelor. Like, it's a positive right. thing, yep. right? It's like, oh, he's an old bachelor or he's a dirty old man. It's like, it's all like this sort of positive, like he's single and swinging and he's 70, but like old maid, right? <laughs> <laughs> <Blah>. <laughs> right. You, there's no male equipment. It's so crazy when you start, yeah.
1: Yeah, there's a lot more. Yeah, that. There's there. a lot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The, I'm ready for the third wave. Um, well, and you know, I actually find um, reading books like this when I'm really enraged about the world both comforting and like you said like kind of insidious like ah oh, fuck man how do we break the chains of this shit
0: well the um, scariest part is and when the he...
1: answer oh, sorry. the answer is it's up to you and me writer like yeah. to like it's up to men to say when fucked up shit is happening totally and that's the other thing like that's that's not a thing that he talks about in this book necessarily but it is a thing that's important like when men see fucked up shit happening men doing fucked up shit they can't be scared to point it out yeah um and so uh, you're gonna have to be the guy to do it, Ryder. Because I got a lot of stuff to I do. I
0: told you I'm working on the project right now. I've <laughs>
1: I've got the initial financing. I just need
0: cast. So it's gonna happen. And
1: <laughs> and the other challenge for Ryder is that Ryder's raising a a beautiful young man, a smart, intelligent, articulate little boy already. It's very um, it's very interesting. Like I was, you
0: know, obviously like
1: having a kid changes.
0: I mean, I'm sure Julia, you have insight on this too. Like. Man, like, just gender is such a thing with babies. <laughs> like, you just, you have to deal with it. Do you know what I mean? You can't avoid it anymore. Like, I feel like when you don't have a kid, you can sort of, like, be comfortable in your own skin and figure out how your relationship with gender is and sort of just move on or in your relationship, or whatever. But the second you have a kid, it's like, if it's a girl or if it's a boy, are you going to put them in dresses? Are you going to cut their hair? Like, everything is suddenly a gendered discussion that you have to, like, just... You, you, you have to make a decision about it. You can't like not make a decision because everybody's making decisions for you. And, and then your kid starts making their own decisions and you're just like, Oh God. So you're just suddenly playing a game of catch up. Uh, and it's, mm. it's fascinating. Like, and it's a really interesting time too.
2: Yeah. And I think, I think clothes and hair, like it's totally interesting. And however, those are like the easy ones where I find myself just getting it way in my head and freaking out is, like, I want Vega to be good, right? I'm like, you're a good girl is a phrase I have yeah. used. And I'm like, no, I don't want that. I don't want a good girl. I don't want, like, an obedient girl, you know? <laughs> right, and I start, like...
1: Jane Austen. Thinking
2: about that really deeply. And when I wasn't, you know, when I, before I knew she was going to, you know, present female, um, I... I was really nervous about having a boy and I had friends who were like, I hope you have a boy because you know, you guys will just raise the best boy. And I just felt this like huge pressure of like that Mm -hmm. as well. So I was happy to get out of that. (laughs)
1: Um, (laughs) But
2: it's something like, I think about it every single day with the way that we talk to her. I think about every single one of her toys. I think about, you know, the way that we, like, touch her and hold her. And it is really intense. Yeah. So, yes, yeah, <laughs> so I agree with you. And it's, like, got me so in my yeah.
1: head. Oh, uh, gosh. All right. Well, listeners, um, if you have a young man in your life, go by The Man They Wanted Me to Be by uh, Toxic Masculinity and a Crisis of Roadmaking by Jared Yates sexton's out now in hardback from Counterpoint press and if you want to um relive the great fun of the time right after the election uh i really enjoyed um his book the people are going to rise like the waters upon your shore a lot of fun reading remember the halcyon days of the fascist rallies
0: literary disco is produced and edited by justin alvarez for lit hub radio you can reach out to us directly on twitter at literary disco happy reading everybody and thanks for listening